Let's turn to Romans 2 and 14 again tonight, please. Be on the lookout for Professor Sadar's latest rant on the in WashingtonTimes.com, right? It's a good one. I haven't read it yet, but I I heard it was good. Somebody told me. Someone who had never toot his own horn. Uh, Romans chapter two. Romans two and Romans fourteen. Tonight the title. Once in a while, a title pops in my head. It's called Jesus, Lord and Judge of the Living and the Dead. Romans 2 and 14, continuing the strategy called the pincer movement from the right and left flanks of Romans, in which is really causing quite a few insights to pop as a result of following that strategy. Let's take a moment of silent prayer. Father, we're mindful that when we gather together, something is happening that is invisible. And it's the advancement of your will on earth as it's done in heaven. It's the advancement of your kingdom. It's the advancement of the interests of Jesus Christ in the hearts of people being advanced. We think of the prayer prayed by early Christians. Let grace come and may this world pass away. And we thank you that you have invaded this evil age. Indeed, that it will pass away to bring about the new and to make all things new and that you've already swept us up into that renewing glorious process. We're so grateful. We ask that you'll open the eyes of our understanding tonight in ways beyond our expectation. We ask this in his name, Christ's name. Amen. A couple of things to get off the docket. First of all, last night I, used an off-handed comparison of the salvific act of God with a double action and single action of a pistol. Now, I haven't shot for a long time, so I got it all mixed up. And back in the back row, my friend Will Milheim was giving me some very welcome hand signals about how it's like. So, it was... I, the bottom line is I've likened salvation to... A divine action only. Now, the single action pistol that we fire sometimes is one that has first you pull back the hammer, it locks, then you fire, and it fires. The double action does both of those in one shot. You pull the trigger, it goes back, and it drops the hammer all in one action. And that's kind of like divine salvation. Divine salvation is God pulling both acts. He takes the part of the man and the woman in salvation because we're saved not by the act of human believing, but by the act of human faithfulness in Christ. The human faith that by which we are saved is the 
faithfulness of the human, Jesus Christ, who is also divine. God's action in salvation is the only action that counts. And the second thing I was thinking about is a larger picture, and that is that I recall, maybe you do too, at the beginning of Rev the Book, the primary question that I put really to the Lord was, is your judgment retributive, your last judgment, your final judgment, is it a retributive judgment or is it a transformative or restorative judgment? And the answer to that question has been forthcoming ever since, and it's far exceeded any expectations I would ever have of a divine answer. And I think we're finding that out more and more as we see the eschatological salvation of God that's been worked out in Christ for a, all of humankind and all of creation. And the third thing, I also asked this question at the end of Rev the book and at the beginning of Better Call Paul, and that was, can we consider all of Paul's letters in together Paul's letters in toto, an apocalypse, just as the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. And we're finding out more and more that the answer to that is affirmative, an emphatic affirmative. The apocalypse being the stunning revelation of God's coming into history and of God's future being all in all and of our future being all in all. And there's a little better phrasing than now and not yet that has been developed recently. I hope to bring that up pretty soon. And I'm stunned at the reading material that the Lord keeps putting in front of me because after asking that question, I've read almost everything I have read, and that's a couple dozen books. The turn has been a great turning toward apocalyptic theology, the theology of apocalypse, where salvation is no longer regarded as an individual personal matter only, but as a cosmic event of God in which individuals are swept up and in which God is startlingly revealed in his power, his omnipotent power, married to his unrestricted love for creation. So we're finding that to be true. And one of the books that testifies to this more more than anyone I've read so far is by Philip G. Ziegler, that's Z-I-E-G-L-E-R, and it's called Militant Grace. It's very recent, didn't come out till March 20th of 2018, which is last month. And it is about the apocalyptic turn and the future of Christian theology. And the strongest emphasis is on Paul and Paul's apocalyptic thinking. And so that's, those are the two real big questions that I've asked in my study, and both are being answered beyond my expectation. And I find that the God whom I serve specializes in one thing, exceeding my expectations. And even when my own expectations exceed my ability to expect, (laughs) he still exceeds them. 
So it's, that's an Ephesians 3.20 thing. Now, in Romans 2 and in Romans 14, we have a remarkable proliferation of the word that relates to judgment. It's called krino. There are, in Romans 2, seven uses of it. Romans 14, there are eight uses of it. And then it's used very little throughout the rest of the epistles. So the pincer strategy that we're employing, coming at the center from the right flank, which is Romans 12 through 16, and the left flank, which is Romans 1 to 4, to get to a double center, 5 to 8, 9 to 11, is proving to be a very effective strategy. In 2 and 14, there is a remarkable proliferation of the word to judge. And I want you to see how this works out. We've already translated Romans chapter 2 in its totality. I have a translation already of Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 15, Romans 16, part of Romans 5, and part of Romans 14. We're going to go through all the way through verse 13. Just look with me, starting at verse 1 of Romans 2. This is after the teacher's sermon, the opponent of Paul, and Paul lets him ramble on for a while in Romans 118 to 32, and this Jewish Christian teacher rails against the idolatrous immorality of the pagans, the Gentiles. And Paul replies in Romans 2.1, he says, Therefore you, O man, using the second person singular as if he's addressing a single person, an influential teacher, O man here means mere mortal, are without excuse, echoing what the Jewish teacher said about the Gentile pagan idolaters in 120. You are without excuse. Then he addresses all of the followers of this nomistic gospel preacher who preaches a gospel of salvation through human action, not divine. Therefore you, O man, are without excuse, every one of you who judges. Use of Crino there. For while you are judging... Crino, another, you are condemning Katakrino yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Then the teacher replies in 2 2. But we know the judgment of God upon those who practice such things is based on the truth. Paul comes back. In verse 3, this is Wing Chun martial arts where there's a constant contact maintained and constant strikes happening. But do you think, O man, that any one of you who judges those who practice these things yet do the same things, that you will escape the, quote, wrathful judgment of God? And then verse 13, Paul says this. This is where it gets very fine-tuned. And Wing Chun is the best way of describing this kind of rhetorical combat by analogy. Paul says, For, 
And what he means is, according to your gospel, he's talking to this teacher, this Jewish Christian teacher. Paul is a Christian Jewish apostle sent by Jesus Christ with a gospel of divine action. And the double action required in salvation of God and man is both performed by God. God, the Savior, and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Christ, is the action of our salvation. So Paul says in verse 13, for according to your gospel teacher, he says it is, and he's quoting the teacher here, it is not the hearers of Torah who will be justified by God, but the doers of the law will be justified by the law. That's what the teacher teaches. This is totally against, of course, Romans 3.20, which alludes to Psalm 143.2, that no one alive can be justified by any human means. So certainly not by doing the works of the law. Paul then puts in a parenthesis in verse 14. So whenever Gentiles who do not have Torah instinctively do what the Torah requires, they are Torah themselves. They demonstrate that the code of conduct required by the Torah is written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness among themselves. Their thoughts sometimes accusing and sometimes defending themselves. So there's a parenthesis between around 2.14 and 15. And so it should read this way. Let's go from 13 right directly to 16. We've already done this before. It's review. For according to your gospel teacher, it is not the hearers of Torah or the law who will be justified by God, but the doers of the law will be justified by the law. Right into verse 16. On that day, when God judges the secrets of humankind. Paul puts in another parenthesis here, and this is definitive for his gospel. According to my gospel, he does this through Christ Jesus, by Christ Jesus. Paul believes, Paul knows, Paul has seen Jesus of Nazareth in his resurrection. He knows that the day of the last judgment is a saving day. It is a day of judgment unto life for all humankind. It is a day of a single outcome of judgment, pan-humanly speaking, for all humanity. It is a universal rectification because the one who judges is Jesus Christ, the very person that this teacher sidelines in his teaching. Paul makes central. Our judge, and as Jesus himself said it in John 5, 27, all judgment has been entrusted to me because I am the son of man. The judge of all humankind is the one who received judgment for all humankind on Calvary. And so the one who judges is the one who received our judgment. He became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So, verse 27, we finished this off last night, at least as far as the way we'll treat it this time. And so the one who by nature is uncircumcised, but who fulfills the law, that's speaking 
here, ultimately, of the Christian who loves. That fulfills the law, according to Romans 13.10. Will judge you who, through the letter, that's external observance, and circumcision, violate the Torah. Verse 28, for one is, and this is another place where Paul inserts something, the Jewish Christian teacher, gospelizer, who's not really telling any good news at all, but only fake good news, Paul says, for, quote, one is, and if you skip his word, a Jew who is one outwardly. One is a Jew who is one outwardly. We're justified by works of the law, according to this teacher. And a person is a Jew who is one outwardly. And that's by, for males, external ritual circumcision. And for all people, an external observance of the commandments of Torah. Especially, as we're going to see in Romans 14, with regard to holy days. Feasts of holy days, Sabbaths, new moons, the honoring of one day above another. But Paul inserts the word not here, verse 28. For one is not, Paul says, a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is real circumcision something visible in the flesh at all, he says. Verse 29, on the contrary, and he quotes, right now he's using a kind of rhetorical jujitsu in which he uses the teacher's own statements, which would be this, and uses his energy against him. On the contrary, the real Jew is one in the hidden part, and circumcision is of the heart. Now, the Jewish teacher is going to agree with him so far. Paul then inserts another parenthesis here that turns the whole thing upside down. He says, by the spirit and not by the mere letter. The two persons that this gospelizer, who is a false teacher, sidelines, marginalizes, puts on the bench, as it were, are Christ Jesus, by whom we will be judged, and the Spirit, by whom we live the spiritual life. The two divine persons, which represent two divine missions, which represent a twofold divine invasion into this present evil age, to create a turning of the ages. And then Paul says, whose praise comes not from men, but from God. Now, Romans 14, the theme of judgment continues, and it's amazing that that judgment theme is compressed in the left flank in Romans 2, in the right flank in Romans 14, and you hardly find that word judge anywhere else in Romans. And here it's in many different nuances or many different meanings in many different places. Romans 14.1. Be receiving the one who is weak in the faith. Weak in the faith is a name. It's a pejorative kind of name, a name that's kind of derogatory for Jewish believers who are still insistent on eating certain foods. They're insistent on a dietary regimen called kosher or whatever you want to call it. And according to Torah, which doesn't affect their salvation one way or another, or their spiritual life for that matter, but they are still insistent on these scruples. 
And so there is a group that has labeled themselves the strong in faith. These are the Pharisees of freedom. These are the people that actually take their freedom and use it to beat people over the head with it. They know that there is no regulations, and so they make a big deal out of flaunting their liberty without a care to their brothers. And therefore, they sacrifice love for liberty. And that, too, is a violation. So Paul says, and the context here, we must have the context set up. We're talking about what the Christians used to call agape feasts or love feasts. You read about them in Jude. You read about them in Second Peter. You read about them throughout many of the places in the New Testament. A love feast was a social gathering that involved a social repast or meal and oftentimes included, if not all the time, included the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And so we can imagine these things occurring in a house church where often there was a large foyer or a large garden place and people that were rather wealthy, maybe even Achilla and Priscilla who were wealthy entrepreneurs, would have a love feast and they would invite all the saints in Rome. They would come as some of them Caesar's bureaucratic slaves, some of whom were rich, some of whom were poor. They would come from the tenements and from the regions that we now call the slums in Rome. They would come from all over But there's group biases among these as we've been studying. And so the receiving here is, let's receive them into these gatherings. But here's what he says. Be receiving the one who is weak in the faith and not to pass judgment on his opinions. Take them into your social gatherings, your love feasts. But don't start arguing with them at the doorstep and then throughout the night about your opinions on certain matters that are non-essential. Verse 2, he explains what he means. One person believes that he or she can eat anything. The omnivorous crowd. But the weak one eats only vegetables. He's talking about both Jews and Gentiles who are attached to a regimen of eating, not because it's a diet that they read about online or something, but because it fits into their religious scruples or their conscience. So they eat according to a certain regimen. One person believes that he or she can eat anything, but the one who eats, but one, the weak one, eats only vegetables. And that includes the Jewish believers in Rome who still have scruples about eating kosher meals. The one who eats, in verse 3, that is, the one who has freedom in their faith to eat everything, must not despise, here we don't have judge, but despise, the one who does not eat. So we have on one side a judgmentalism, from a religious standpoint. On the other side, we have the Pharisees of freedom, largely Gentile believers, but some Jewish believers who, like Paul, know that they have freedom, but unlike Paul, despise those weak brothers. And this is all because of divisiveness and walls built up between 
groups of believers. So the one who eats, that means they have the freedom to eat because their faith allows their conscience to eat anything. Must not despise the one who does not eat because her faith prohibits eating certain foods, especially under certain conditions. Like we study in 1 Corinthians 8, there was the idea of offering meat or food to idols. And there were people, Gentiles and Jews alike, Christians, who if they found out that that meat was offered to an idol, would not eat it. And they would be horrified if someone else did. And so under certain conditions, Paul says, we know he's of the strong, but he's not of the despising kind or the judgmental kind. He said, we know that an idol is nothing, that idols are nothing in themselves. But if my brother is offended, then I won't eat that meat offered to idols while the world stands. That's different in the love feast because everything is served. And the one who can only eat some things should be allowed to go to the table where that's those things alone are served. But the one who is able to eat everything ought to be able to go to any table he wants or any table she wants and eat all that she wants without being judged by the one who is limited in their dietary restrictions because of their faith. And that's what Paul's saying here. And the reason I'm saying this is because the gospel of this Jewish Christian false missionary teacher is fueling the judgmentalism of some of the Jewish Christians in Rome. And some of the Gentiles are reacting by despising them, and that's what's causing the rift. And Paul's intention is to explode the walls that separate them. So one person believes that he or she can eat everything. The weak one eats only vegetables. The one who eats, that is, has the freedom in their faith to eat everything, must not despise the one who does not eat because her faith prohibits eating certain foods under certain conditions. That's my bracketed commentary. The one who does not eat, that is, he's talking about the one whose conscience in faith repels the eating of some foods at these love feasts, must not judge... The one who eats. Again, the word crino is used here for judge. Corresponding to the uncircumcised or the Gentile believer who fulfills Torah will judge the circumcised who violates Torah in Romans 2.27. So there's a correspondence of Romans 2.27 on the left flank with Romans 14.3 on the right flank. And then he says, because God has received him. And the interesting thing about this statement is God has received him. The one that you're judging or the one that you're despising, you should know God has received her. And the word God has received her, that phrase means unconditionally. He has received her without condition. And there's a reason for it. And the same thing pops up in Romans fifteen seven. Receive one another, same thing, in these love feasts, in these social repasts, followed by the Eucharist. Receive one another, even as Christ has received you, to the glory of his Father. That's a high expectation. So verse 4, who are you to judge or pass judgment on a house servant. That's a specific word for a house 
slave. Who are you to pass judgment on a house servant of another master? Meaning another, a master other than you. And we're going to see that this word master is kurios, another K word. Kurios has two meanings. You can have it as a small K and it means master. Or it can mean Lord in the small Lord sense. But the nuance here is directing this toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of all. The doctrine of the Lordship of Christ has been so abused that it needs to be retrieved and recovered and placed in its right place, its rightful place. And that's what we'll attempt to begin to do tonight. So again, in verse 4, the theme of judgment continues. He says, who are you to pass judgment on a house servant of another master other than you? That means the Lord Jesus is his master and yours is the point. To his own master, Curio, also known as Lord, he stands or falls. Now stands here means he remains in a safe place with his own master or he falls. He's fired by his master or whatever. But you know what Paul says, but stand, he will. He will stand. There's no question about a servant of Jesus Christ falling. Stand, he will. Why will he stand? Because everybody stands. Because what does it say here? God, the Lord, has the power to make him stand. He'll stand Because the Lord, his Lord, has the power to make him stand. He's moving toward the judgment seat of Christ, what we call the last judgment, which you should know by now has a salvific outcome. And this is what I've been trying to do, as some of you know, I've been trying to do the rich man and Lazarus, and I've been... Every morning I get up and the Holy Spirit puts his hand or somebody, one of the, a Godhead, won't let me do it. And I think I know the reason why now. Because for one thing, there's an urgency to do Romans. But on the other hand, all that we're teaching should render the idea of anyone in an eternal hell to be a reductio ad absurdum. In other words, should reduce the whole idea to an absurdity. So you should already know that it's all the doctrines of the final single outcome of judgment, of the single view of homardiology of all mankind, of all people living in or dying in Adam, made alive in Christ, Christ dying for all, made alive for all, all are living unto him. You should know that by all of these things, to look at the parable that Jesus is not teaching, that there is a man in hell. In fact, we'll also demonstrate that what he's talking about is the Egyptian and the Greek view of the afterlife and not the true view, a a view that was taken over by the rabbis and the Jewish scholars whom he was opposing. They had this view of an afterlife, but Jesus comes through and he says to them in the key term, I'll give you a hint about this. The key term he uses is one that he uses going into the parable in Luke sixteen sixteen. The law and the prophets were until John and in, ever since John came, everyone is pressing into the kingdom of God. 
And then in 1629 and 1631, in the most surprising part of the parable, Abraham is made to say to the rich man, your brothers, they have the law and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets. And the key word in 1629 and 1631 and five other times in Luke, the law and the prophets. There is not a vision of an eternal damnation in hell in the law and the prophets. So Jesus is undoing a mythology that came from the Egyptian story of Setme and Siosiris, which was then taken on in seven different versions in the rabbinical writings of the Jewish rabbis, closing with the Targum, in which a person goes to hell and another person is in bliss, and all it is is an adoption of a mythology that began in Egypt. And it was Plato, the philosopher, who taught that there's an eternal hell, not Jesus Christ, and none of the prophets, none of the law and the prophets. They have the law and the prophets in which there is no such vision. The law and the prophets, he said, testify of me, of Christ. And ought not Christ to have suffered and entered into his glory? Or don't you know what all the prophets are saying? The glory that he enters is a universal glory. How in the hell can someone then take the picture of a rich man being in eternal flames in a hopeless, Christless eternity as being anything other than an absurdity that Jesus Christ is subverting on purpose in that parable? That's just a hint. That's about one-eighth of what I have on that parable. But the very building stone that the hell crowd uses to build their ridiculous, blasphemous, Christ-rejecting, cross-diminishing doctrine of hell, built on the rich man and Lazarus, that's one of the weakest foundations for a doctrine of hell. It's part of the strong, strongest foundation stones for a doctrine of universal salvation. I'm just saying that so that people won't look like fools when they try to use that doctrine, that parable. You see, I'm getting there, but the Holy Spirit's just saying, just keep teaching Romans and you'll, you'll, by the time I get done with Romans, you'll have the whole parable knocked anyways. So look what he does, though, here. Stand he will because the Lord has the power to make him stand. And I'll tell you what that, where he's going with this. We'll all stand and not fall before the judgment seat of God because the judgment will be conducted through the one who fell three times under the weight of the cross on the way to be judged for you. And he was judged all the way up the top of the mountain called Golgotha, where he saw the panorama of the view of all humankind, the pan-human panorama. And when he saw it, he said, Father, forgive them. Not just the people at the foot of the cross, all humanity for all time. At the top of Skull Hill, he uttered it. Stand he will. Because his master, the Lord, Jesus Christ, has the power to make him stand. What is his power? It is unlimited power married to unrestricted love. God is love. 
understand he will. Verse 5. For one person judges. That's Now he turns the word crino into something that we make a judgment after reflection. We reflect on something and we make a judgment. And that's a very important way to think. Reflection and judgment. And the judgments we make are the fruit of reflection. So now he's using the word crino to mean a slightly different nuance of meaning. He says in verse 5, one person judges. Now he's not judging a person. He's making a value judgment. He distinguishes, in fact, is the word. One person, crino, but here we translate it, distinguishes one day from another. Someone else judges, that's crino, considers all days alike. He who observes the day. Now this he's speaking of. He keeps playing with this word day too because there's a day in which all people will be judged. It's called the day of Christ Jesus. But he says one observes the day. Verse 6. He who observes a day, a special day like say the Sabbath, observes it to the Lord. Now, when I did my mom's eulogy, that's exactly what struck me. And I didn't even know what verse it was, but she served the Lord in the Roman Catholic Church in the food pantry, and she was a Eucharistic minister, and she honored certain days that I really didn't care about, but she did, and so we honored it. See, someone would say, to say, well, she was just doing this as a religious devotion. I say she was doing it to the Lord, serving the Lord loving the Lord by that service. And I know that's to be the case. So he's saying here, a one person observes a day, a particular day, to the Lord, with a view to the Lord, not with a view to men, with a view to the Lord. She's honoring the Lord. And the one who eats... And that's perhaps not only to social repast, but the Eucharistic meal is what he's talking about here. Eats to the Lord, in honor of the Lord, with respect to the Lord. As 2 Corinthians 5.15 says the same thing. In 5.14, if one died for all, then all died. And therefore, Paul says, therefore, I have come to judge that if one died for all, then all died. And now the love of Christ controls me. And those of us who live, which is everybody who lives because Christ lives too, should live not to themselves, but to the Lord. Christian service is a wonderful thing. It's ugly, though, when someone serves the Lord to themselves with a view to themselves. Someone else will serve the Lord with a view to the Lord, and they're almost so unassuming that you don't even know what they're doing and they don't even really regard what they're doing, but they're serving the Lord in the spirit. They're boasting in Christ Jesus. They have no confidence in the flesh and they're not living with a view to themselves at all. That's called mental health for one thing. That's called spiritual life for another thing. That's called a higher integration that lives above the anxieties and the neurotic worries of this life and walks on them like water. So then, Paul says, look, 
Somebody observes a day. They observe it to the Lord. Leave them alone. Who are you to judge them? Another person regards every day of the year like it's Christmas. Leave them alone. They observe. They don't observe unto the Lord. Every day is alike to them. I kind of prefer that second thing, but I like the thing of every day is alike. And that's why when Easter comes, I'm thinking, we got to celebrate Easter. We've been doing that every day. But I respect those who take that special day to honor the Lord. They do it to the Lord. Leave them alone. And so, the one who eats, eats to the Lord, giving thanks. And the word here is Eucharistē, which is where we get the word Eucharist, giving thanks. So that includes the Eucharistic meal in the social repast. Eats to the Lord in honor of the Lord, giving thanks to God. And what does this giving thanks to God mean? It means, for me it means, Romans 7.25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord who saves us from this body that's subjected to death, the power of death, the power of sin, the power of the devil, the power of the flesh, the power of this evil age. I thank God through Jesus Christ who saves me from this body that is subject to death and from not only a slavery to sin, but a complicity with sin. If everybody understood the gospel, there would be no, it wouldn't be 10 months or two years talking about collusion when they realize that the whole human race is in active collusion with sin. We not only are under its slavery, we act in accordance with it, and there isn't anybody in this room who doesn't or hasn't. And I thank God through Jesus Christ, he saves us from not only the power of sin and our slavery to it, but our complicity with it and our collusion with it. So then, verse 6, he who observes a day, observes it to the Lord. He who eats, Eats to the Lord, giving thanks to God. For verse 7, for none of us lives to himself alone. And no one dies to himself alone. That means a lot of things, but the issue here is we're talking about nobody dies without the Lord. Nobody lives without the Lord. Nobody is anything without the Lord. It also means you can't just make all the decisions you want because you want to be you and you want to do the best thing for you and you want to look out for you because there's a hundred people in your life that will be affected by your actions. You don't live to yourself. Your decisions affect others. You don't die All by your lonesome, your death affects many other people. So it's God's prerogative when he'll take you home. That's another feature of this. But the point is, none of us lives to himself alone, and no one dies to himself alone. Look at verse 8 says, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. 
Today I live to the Lord. Someday I'll be on my deathbed or someday I'll be seconds away from my death and won't even know it. It'll come out of the blue and bang, I'm gone. But I will die to the Lord. And when I die, I'll be in his arms. While I live, I walk with him and I walk next to him. And he sits in front of me in the foxholes of life. And when all the slings and arrows of hell come at me, he's there with armor in front of me. He's my shield and my buckler. And he gives me a shield of faith to throw up in these combat zones. If I live, I live to the Lord. So if I die, I die to the Lord. So do you. So do, None of us lives to themselves. I love this. Verse 8. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. We are the Lord's. Now listen to how this goes from here. This builds. We are the Lord's whether we live or die. I'll do something shocking. We are the Lord's whether we live and don't believe and die, or whether we live and believe and die, we are the Lord's. And we are the Lord's if we live and don't believe and die. We are with the Lord when we die. And if we live and if we believe and we die, we are with the Lord when we die. Now, How much more can we say we are the Lord's when we're eating? (laughs) How much more can we say we are the Lord's when we're watching the pirates win again? They're nine and three. How much more, if we are the Lord's whether we live or die, how much more... Are we the Lord's and belong to him while we eat according to a specific regimen or whether we eat whatever we want? We are the Lord's. We are the Lord's whether we live or die. How much more can we say that we are the Lord's whether we consider one day to be more important than another or whether we esteem every day the same? We are the Lord's. Both Romans 2 and Romans 14 then are ensconced in the theme of judgment. Crino is a word used in various contexts and with a range of nuances. Once again, seven times in Romans 2, eight times in Romans 14. All of this, however, listen carefully to this last part. We just hit fourth gear. All of this is to be seen in the light of the last judgment in which the judge is the Lord of the living and the dead. The judge who is love and who was judged on behalf of all human beings. The last judgment is to be a pan-human rectification. The rectification of all humanity a life-giving rectification that even results in the vivification or the making alive of their bodies into bodies of glory. 
If I was to write a theological book, that would be one of the theses that would begin a a chapter, a thesis that would start a chapter. The last judgment is to be a pan-human rectification, a rectification or justification of all human beings, a setting right of both victims and perpetrators of history. Once again, by the interpretive pincer strategy, we're able to read Romans with the light on. And the light that's on is the light of universal reconciliation and rectification. In this light alone, only in this light, are relationships healed and reconciled. Only in this light are the walls built of group biases melted away. And a new leaven, the leaven of the newness of life, begins to leaven the whole lump of dough. So once again, we understand, and we're coming to understand, that Paul's intention in Romans is to bring the reality, capital R, of an all-saving Savior to bear on the problem of divisive group biases in Rome, to bring about a peaceful and loving unity rooted in the truth of each one's redemptive dignity because of Jesus Christ and because of the love that's poured out in each and in every heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to us in Romans 5, 5 through 8. It describes that love. So in closing... Let's call this a car with fifth gear. All of this must be viewed, one, in the light of the lordship of Christ over all. All of this has to be viewed in the light of the lordship of Christ over all. Even of all the living and all the dead. And two, all of this must be viewed in the light of the last judgment, which will be conducted by Christ Jesus according to Paul's apocalyptic gospel, Romans 2.16. Both of these realities, the lordship of Christ over all, the living and the dead included, and the last judgment which will be conducted by the one who was judged for us, all, both of these are now forcefully featured in the next few verses. Look at Romans 14.9. For this reason, for this reason, Christ died and came to life. Why? Well, here's why. That he would be the Lord of the dead and the living. That's like saying in Ephesians, he descended to the lowest regions and ascended to the highest heights to demonstrate that he's going to fill up everything with himself and comprise all of created reality with his own life. He will rectify, set right all of creation by his life. The dead and the living is a summary of all humanity. 
You can't find another category for human beings, the dead and the living. But God doesn't see the dead and the living. That's a bifurcation. That's a binary view. That's a wrong view of humanity. You know what God sees? Jesus said in Luke 20, 37 and 38, to God, all are living. So those who are called dead to us are alive to God. We have our funerals, we have our funeral services, and we weep and we should, and grief is natural, and you should let it be. You should grieve over those whom you have lost from this life. It's not even natural not to. But we ought to recognize that to God they're living. And he gives life to all. So the dead and the living, as far as categories go, sums up one humanity, all of humanity. Jesus is Lord of all humanity, and to God, all are living. There's no getting around, listen to this one, there is no getting around the ultimate reality, capital R, that all human beings and all of creation will be summed up in Jesus Christ and that God will be all in all. This is, here's another thesis I would put in a Christian theology book after, thank God, the turn to apocalyptic theology. This is what I'd say. This is the inevitable future that is already the reality, capital R, that is hidden in Christ, in the eternal God. It's already the reality that is hidden And so the secrets of all people that will be revealed in the last judgment is this secret. You've been secreted away in Christ in God all along. How's that for a secret? The judgment, the last judgment is the best day of your life coming up. There's no day like it. You should rejoice about it. You should sing with people that understood it back in the early century, the early part of the 20th century. Hallelujah, come on, get happy, get ready for the judgment day because it's the happiest day for all of creation when the trees will clap their hands, the mountains will sing, and everything that has breath will sing praise to God. How much more is Jesus now the Lord of those who eat and those who don't? If he's, the, if he's the Lord of those who died, and that includes the unbelieving dead, and he's the Lord of those that live, whether believing or not, how much more is he the Lord of those people that come to your love feast and only want to eat lettuce? How much more is he the Lord of those whom the lettuce eaters called garbage bellies, eaters of everything? They're over there eating steak, ribs, Bacon steaks, which is a steak made out of bacon. I had one of those lately. I love that. Pork belly, pizza, and chocolate crosses, all in one love feast. But Jesus is their Lord. And there's somebody over there li- nibbling on water crosses, and that's as far as they're going to go all day with food, except the communion. And they're going to make sure that the host is gluten free. And unleavened. But Jesus is their Lord and they're doing it to the Lord. So, how much more if he's the Lord of the living and the dead is he Lord of, let's say this, 
If he's the Lord of the living and the dead, that's all of humanity, then he must be the Lord of theists and atheists, Muslims and Jews, Buddhists and Christians, even Democrats and Republicans. Does this offend you? Does this offend you that I said this? Then take it up with God. He gives life to all beings and all things in 1 Timothy 6.13. And to him all are living, even those we know are dead. So what are we to say about the dead and who have not believed? Here's a quote from Jürgen Moltmann. I'll close with two quotes. Jürgen Moltmann has the best answer to this I've seen so far. And he answers it in a, in a book called The Living God and the Fullness of Life, page two, pages 79 and 80. It was published in 2015. Quote, Jürgen Altman. There is a remarkable passage in the epistle of Peter, 316 to 22 and 46, which expresses the assurance that Christ descended into the realm of death in order to proclaim the gospel to the spirits in prison, or as is said later, to the dead so that they might have life in God's way in the spirit, 4.6 of 1 Peter. This means, first of all, the dead who formerly did not obey, the dead who formerly did not obey, that means they didn't enter into the obedience of faith while they were in this life. When God's patience waited, but then all the dead as well, so that they might live in the spirit like God. How is it possible for the dead to hear, quotes, the gospel and believe how it is possible is not said. It is enough to know that that death can set no limits to the risen Christ. And that the life awakening spirit of God is with the dead. So that they have life. That is, the divine eternal life. For the living, they are dead. But for the risen Christ, they are not dead. He can do something for them, and he does do something for them. He raises them up and takes them with him on his way to resurrection and to life. So 14.10 of Romans, now you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, why should you despise your brother? For you see, we will all be present to be accounted for at the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to me. So then each one of us will give an account to God. Therefore, from now on, stop judging one another. Instead, judge this, that you'll never put an obstacle or an enticement in your brother's way. He's talking here about a judgment in which every tongue ends up praising God because everyone will have had a judgment of acquittal, rectification, justification, life. One more thing, and I'm skipping some things, but I read today Once in a while, I read something in a book, and I label it exquisite. I'll say good, a star, two stars. Excellent, two, three, sometimes 
five stars. Seven stars, exquisite. Today I read an exquisite quote from Mr. Ziegler, Philip G. Ziegler, in his very recent book, again, called Militant Grace. It's only 200 pages, too. But it's at least 1,000 pages in density. He says this, and I quote it because it's one of those rare and precious passages that sums up a vast amount of theological truth with a constellation of powerful scriptural references. Here's the paragraph. The saving work of the cross and the resurrection is the world's rectification by the Christ of God, whom death could not hold, Acts 2.24. It comes to expression as a rescue from the present evil age, Galatians 1.4. The triumphant disarming of the powers of the age, Colossians 2.15. A remaking of godless creatures. Romans 5, 6. The bringing into being a new newness of human partners who were as good as not or nothing. Romans 4, 17. The making alive of those dead in sin's service. Ephesians 2, 5. In, in short, 2, 5. It is the advent of a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, by incorporation into the living lordship of the crucified one. Now we live. This is my conclusion. Seventh gear, I guess. Now he have risen. Now we have risen to a newness of life that will never become antiquated and will always be new. Now we serve not in the antiquated letter, but in the newness of the Spirit. Now we are the real circumcision who serve in God's Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who have no confidence in the flesh. Philippians 3.3. Father, we just stand in awe that beyond our most fertile imaginations, beyond our most fervent expectations, you answer the deepest questions of our hearts. You fulfill the deepest needs of our soul. You satisfy the desperate requirements of our spirits to know you. And to know you is to know a God of unlimited power that's married to unrestricted love. The love which you demonstrated when while we were yet sinners, Christ died. The love by which Christ died for the ungodly. 